0: Welcome to Awaken Podcasts. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Uh, If you're just coming in, welcome to you all. My name is Micah, and um, we're going to study the Bible here in a little bit. I have a prop today, so it's got to be a good sermon. I don't have props usually, so that'll be great. Um, We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1, if you want to turn there. And as you do, I'll just let you know about this quick announcement. Uh, Last week, we announced that we're going to host a couple of different listening circles on the 27th, so that's a week from today, the 29th, which would be Tuesday, and then the 30th, which would be Wednesday. And this is connected to, uh, in the covenant, which is the denomination we're a part of, we talk about this idea of freedom in Christ. And so in in non-essentials, we extend freedom to one another because we're in Christ, when and if we, met, we differ on a matter that's not essential, right? If uh, two different people come to different interpretations on what the scripture might say, we have this long-held tradition of creating space for one another uh, where we extend freedom uh, because we're in Christ. So uh, a number of us have been meeting since about November, 10 of us or so, a small group, um, and our intent is to draft uh, some kind of statement that's related to uh, LGBTQ participation in the life of our community. And so... Um, uh, we're going to be hosting. Uh, I just, I guess, uh, realize that we don't really have anything official written, and so we talk about this in Discover Awaken, we talk about this in our membership classes or our partnership classes, and kind of talk about the path that we're taking on this, but there's nothing online and there's nothing official that the, the church has, and I just realized that it would be very kind and compassionate, really for any and all, um, no matter where you land on this topic, that we would have some kind of statement that would articulate that. And so in light of that, we wanna invite you to speak into that process. So these listening circles are happening next week, and we invite you to participate, uh, to come. They'll be, they're very, they're highly structured, so there's three questions that you'll be uh, encouraged to, to sort of offer your thoughts on. Everybody gets five minutes, And then most of the time that you spend there will be listening. Uh, They're listening circles after all, friends. They're not talking circles. So the point is listening to one another and trying to create a space where really um, you're you're free to share what's on your heart, your hopes and your dreams, your fears or your concerns, and kind of your thoughts on what next steps might be uh, related to our journey as a church. So I want to invite you to that if you have not. You can sign up online, go to the website, click on the first little link there, and that'll take you to all the places you need to go. Sound good? Okay, friends, Colossians chapter one. Um, And actually, on the back of your uh, bulletins, I've printed the actual text, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, many believe is one of the first Christian hymns that the church would have sung together. Many would argue that Paul is borrowing material in order to write what he's written. And so if you can imagine the first church when they would have met, they would have said this together. Uh, And it was very poetic, like one thing holds up another and the other holds up the one. So uh, I'm going to ask you to stand and typically I just read the text, but I'm going to ask that we read it together today sort of in light of that tradition or that idea that maybe the first church would have said this together. So, um, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, let's read this together. He is the image of God, the invisible one, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things were created, in the heavens and here on earth, things we can see and things we cannot, thrones and lordships and rulers and powers, all were created both through him and for him. And he is a head, prior to all else. And in him all things hold together. And he himself is supreme, the head over the body, the church. He is the start of it all, firstborn from realms of the dead, so in all things he might be the chief. For in him all the fullness was glad to dwell. And through him to reconcile all to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, yes, things on earth and also the things in the heavens. Pray with me. God, we thank you for your living word that is Jesus, resurrected, alive and well, who brings resurrection, who brings new things, life from death. We thank you for your written word, which bears witness to Jesus, the Christ God, we thank you for your spirit, which takes the written word and makes it alive in our hearts and in our minds. And I pray that that would be the case today, God, that you would take these words that we've heard, this written word, and you would make it alive and fresh in our lives and in our community for the sake of your name and your renown. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if you've been watching the news lately. Um, We're in the midst of a government shutdown. I will not be preaching about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, what are we, like 28 days into this thing or something like that? Um, the prices of med- medicine that people need like to live their lives is skyrocketing, very difficult to get in some cases. There's wars and rumors of wars in all kinds of countries across the world. There, uh, uh, in American politics, party lines are pretty deep. Um, There seems to be a real polarization across party lines with no real hope of like mending the gap between those two things. Uh, I don't know about you, but sometimes I sort of blink my eyes and shake my head and I I imagine I've opened my eyes and like things will be different, but they're not. I don't know if you've had that experience before. Uh, And I think in a lot of ways, people are sort of, they're looking, they're they're wondering, they're grasping for straws, they're grasping for some kind of narrative, some kind of cohesive explanation to like how we find ourselves here in the midst of all of these things we find ourselves in, Uh, some sort of anchor that will hold amidst whatever raging seas we are in. Uh, That is in part, at least, in part what Dr. King offered, whose life we celebrate tomorrow, when he sort of presented this vision for a future that didn't include systemic racism or the supremacy of one skin color over another. Uh, I don't, we, we had a very interesting conversation last night at the Witham dinner table. Our children stayed there for as long as maybe they ever have. It was a real, Laura and I were kind of like, don't say anything, you'll ruin it. <laughs> but you know, I, I, pro, I sort of offered this question of like, does anyone know why we don't have school on Monday? And that sort of led into this conversation around uh, why we don't have school, and what some of the things that are still happening that we might be um, casting a new vision for in the future. So, where is the hope? Uh, Stephen Curtis Chapman got it right. Heaven in the real world. Any fans out there? Yeah? Yep. I actually, my first Stephen Curtis concert was uh, Signs of Life. I think I entered right at the, right at the good time after dancing in the, with the dinosaur. <laughs> Sorry, for any of you who don't know what that, que- that joke is about, you're probably better off. But, uh, but seriously, where is the hope, right? Like, Paul is essentially saying in this letter to a group of people who find themselves in a world that's a little crazy, uh, that this is the only hope. Uh, Obi-Wan is not the only hope, but like this idea, this hymn that he presents to them is the only hope then, and I would argue it's maybe the only hope now. Uh, Colossians was, was written, we're in a study called The Hope of Glory. Uh, we're in week three, if you're just joining us. Colossians was written to a small band of Jesus followers about 100 miles from a port city called Ephesus. They're sort of up in the hills along a river. And uh, don't forget, this isn't Kansas anymore, friends. Jews and Christians in this day had been scattered all throughout the known world because of warring empires and conquering nations. And it just so happens that at this point, Colasse finds itself smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire, one of the largest, well, arguably the largest empire that the world had ever known, the most powerful superpower. Uh, A superpower that brought education, it brought commerce, it brought a a politic, it brought uh, government and the academy and the arts and roads and water and an empire that was run by famous and notorious emperors. Uh, And at this point in history, when many argue Paul's writing to Colasse. There's about to be a shift of power, uh, which we experience every couple of years, right? But this shift of power, and uh, uh, it couldn't have come quick enough. You know, many people were arguing that the previous administration wasn't doing their job, and everybody was excited about this this new person who would take office, or take the empire in that case, who would rule and sort of right all the wrongs of the previous administration. They'd fix the roads, they'd invest in schools, And do all the things that they should. And of course bring about what everybody longed for, which was peace. Flourishing, wholeness for everybody. Now in a world that doesn't have the internet and that doesn't have iPhones and doesn't have uh, the things that we have, news of this would go out by post. It would go out in the mail and across these sort of ancient Roman roads and routes. Uh, If you didn't know, the letters of the seven churches in Revelation follow an ancient Roman postal route. So news would go out in that way, but it would also go out in the form of propaganda by the empire, in the form of coins. Uh, If you do any studying on the ancient world, you'll know that they would stamp the the propaganda of the empire on coins and put them in the pockets of the people. And so uh, all across Rome, you would have these people jingling, you know, pockets filled with jingling coins, and on them would be the faces of the emperors. Because not everybody could get to Rome and not everybody could see the image of the emperor. And they actually talked about these people in very interesting ways. They would call them the son of God. Uh, They would print things like the Lord of all creation, the savior of the world, printed right there on the coins in the Roman Empire. Uh, And if you weren't uh, a person of of wealth and you didn't have pockets that were filled with the coins of the empire, um, uh, lucky for you, Rome would actually commission uh, what do they call those things? Uh, not sketches, but statues, right? Uh, of, of the emperor himself and his family. And so, in your town, in your city center, in Colossae, in Ephesus, in Corinth, in Galatia, there would likely be an icon, an image, a graven stone image of the emperor and his family, so that you knew exactly who the person was who was bringing peace and prosperity. This was the promise of Rome, right? Put your trust in Rome, put your trust in the empire, and peace will be yours, and more than that, salvation would be yours, they said. A new world order would be yours. There's a, a, a Roman poet called Virgil who actually wrote uh, this, this, this phrase called um, novus ordo seclorum, a new world order, is what Rome promised. Does anybody have a dollar bill? like literally I need a dollar bill and you if you have a dollar bill stand up and bring it bring it up here to the front you're going to participate in a game show it's called Colossians chapter one verses 15 to 20 (laughs) (laughs) who has a a dollar a dollar bill a dollar dollar bill y'all right there come on up front if you would please welcome our new guest to our game show everyone thank you very much yes 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 and what is your name My name's Madison. Madison, everyone. Give a round of applause for Madison. Thank you for playing. Madison, yeah, you can hold the mic. I'm going to hold this real quick. If you could read, this is a dollar bill, right? An American dollar bill. George is on the front. And on the back, there's a couple of signs and symbols. I'm going to have you, Madison, read what you see right underneath that little pyramid, if you would, please. Novus Ordo Seclorum. Huh. Thank you, Madison. You can have your dollar bill back. You can have a seat. Huh. Novus order seclorum. Are you guys putting the pieces to this puzzle together? So like the empire, has a message, and the message is peace, prosperity, like salvation, a new world order. They wrote it on coins and they put them in their pockets so that all the people of the empire would know that it was Rome that was bringing this new world order, that it was the emperor who was going to be the savior of the world, salvation to all, peace and prosperity, flourishing for everybody. It would seem that we are doing the same thing 2,000 years later. That a group of people are maybe putting hope in an idea or a group of people that are going to bring, even on our coins, on our monies, in our pockets, a new world order. I don't know about you, but I'm just going to let that one hang for a little while. Like a group of people believing in the myth that we've got it all together, that through our reason and our thinking and our science and our maths, that there's no problem that we can't solve. This is the the myth of the Enlightenment, by the way. We talked about this a little last week. And every politician every two years gets up there and says, like, I can bring it, we can do it. And they promise utopia. No one gets up there and says, here's a couple of policies that I think might work, but maybe won't. (laughs) Right? They get up there and what do they promise? They promise that whoever was before us didn't get it right, but we're going to get it right because of these things and we're going to do the things that you want and you're going to vote us in and it's going to be what? Utopia. Peace and prosperity. Flourishing for all. And if it hasn't yet, we just got to like apply the formula a little more. A little more justice of our sort. A little more democracy of our type. A little more power the way we define it. But if... If we're honest and we watch the news, if you've been paying any attention, money, sex, and power always wins, doesn't it? Oh man, what a downer. (laughs) Thanks for coming to church, everybody. Have a good day. So, where is the hope? Like, seriously, what is going to, like, what's the vision of the future that's going to get us out of this? It's into this context and this culture, 2,000 years ago, that Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, to a group of people asking the same questions and wondering the same things. Is it Rome? Is it peace? Is it prosperity? Is it the empire? Will they bring it? Or is there some other way? A passage that arguably is literally the highest point in Christology in the entirety of the Bible. Like, this is the pinnacle of theology or understanding or belief or statements about who Jesus is. And what Paul is doing in this letter, in this little hymn, is he's saying who is Jesus and who Rome is not. So I'll just let you fill in whatever blanks you want to fill in in terms of what I'm about to do. This poem, this, and, and, and the reason I put it that way as a format in your bulletins is because it gets lost in some of our translations where it just gets written as prose. It wasn't. It was a hymn. It was a poem. One thing holds up another. It's beautiful. It is, it is a work of art, a literary piece of art. I'm going to just pull three ideas of which there are many. Many. I'm not even going to talk about some of the ones that are like the most beautiful, but here's three that I see that I think are important for us as we think about like, what, what is the hope? What do we place... What's the guiding light? What's the anchor? What's the thing that sort of uh, answers the question or points us in the direction that we want to be going? So the first of which, uh, deep truths that Paul's talking about in Colossians 1.15 is, what is God like? Uh, This is an all-play. If you have never been to Awaken, an all-play is just what it says. Everyone can play. So I'll ask a question, what is God like? My good friend Steve says, we appreciate the chorus instead of the solo So that's what this is. I'd love for you to answer the question, like, what do you think God is like? Just shout it out. I can't hear very well, so please enunciate. What is God like? Forgiving. What else? Good. Good. Love. Love. Creative. Creative. Optimistic. Optimistic. Maybe if you had to answer the question, when some people read the Bible and explain what God is like, what do they say? Maybe getting to some of the less optimistic ideas about what God might be like out there in the room. Angry. Angry. What else? Merciful. Merciful. Jealous. Jealous. Yeah. Judgment. Judgment. What is God like? No big deal, right? Small question to talk about over lunch. One of the largest questions that the human has ever asked. What is God like? And there are all kinds of ideas, uh, well, not all kinds. I would say three major ideas sort of inform that answer. What is God like? The Bible, people who represent God in the Bible, and then people's actual encounters with the risen Christ. Three things at least inform our answer, what is God like? The Bible, people who represent the Bible, and then encounters with the risen Christ. I would suggest that some of our ideas about what God is like are inaccurate because of inaccurate readings of the Bible or misreadings of the Bible. Some of our ideas about what God is like is, are inaccurate because people have misrepresented God to us. In the, in our. And so it remains the all-important question, what is God like? And according to Paul, according to John, according to the writer of Hebrews, Jesus is the answer. You guys have heard that joke about the Sunday school teacher who's like, what is What's gray, has a bushy tail, eats nuts, climbs trees. And the kid's like, ah, it sounds like a squirrel, but I know the answer is Jesus. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 4, in light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, John 1, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Hebrews 1, the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, and now in our letter from Paul to the Colossians, the Son is the image of the invisible God. This is a real participatory day. I need two volunteers. I need two volunteers for this. Uh, So we can't use our our good friend, was it Maddie? Madison. We need two other people. So I need two volunteers. I won't hurt you, I promise. You'll be fine. Yes, thank you, Kevin. And one more. Come on up. One more, one more. I'm going to just start picking. One more. I need one more. Justin, come on up here. Um, I need you to decide who's God and who's Jesus. Who are you going to (laughs) be? So he's older, he's God. God, you're Jesus. All right, God, you're right here. You stand right here, Justin. And and um, Kevin, stand right back here. Okay. Who is God, or what is God like? According to the text, Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So just hold this until I give you the big, like, reveal, okay? Just hold it right there. So... Essentially, we're asking the question, what is God like? And if you imagine, like, there is a veil between, there's some, I cannot see the form, the face, the the, the icon, the representation of God who's over here. And what scripture is essentially saying is that Jesus, thank you, is, not at me, right there, right there, right there, Jesus, Justin, turn around, thank you, there we are, Jesus is the image, he's the reflection. So if we want to know what is God like, what kind of character, what kind of facial features, you know, Metaphorically speaking, we're anthropomizing God now. What does God look like? The Bible is essentially saying that Jesus is the reflection. We know what God is like. We know the character. We know the form. We know the sound. We know the voice. We know the heart of God, the divine, because Jesus reflects to us what we could not see otherwise. So, who is God? Thank you. Give these guys a round of applause. God and Jesus, everybody. God and Jesus. That's a great day. Peter had one day where Jesus called him Satan. I'm calling you God and Jesus, so it's a better day for you. (laughs) What is God like? Whatever you brought into the room this morning, whatever informs the answer to that question, whether it's readings of the Bible or people who have represented God, I just wanna say off the bat that in this passage, one of the most important passages of all the Bible about who is Jesus, Paul is saying that we know what God is like because we know what Jesus is like. If your image or your understanding of God doesn't sound like Jesus, if it doesn't look like Jesus looked, if it doesn't act like Jesus acted, if it doesn't love like Jesus loved, then I would argue on the basis of the Holy Bible that it is not accurate. That's a big deal. What Paul is saying is the answer to that question, that we've all been asking all of our lives, all of our human history, what is God like? It looks like Jesus. The other thing I'll mention here, we won't go into great detail on this, but Paul also says in this passage, the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. So this idea of pitting the Father against the Son is problematic on a number of levels. Let me flesh this out just briefly. I'm going to tease it, and and then I'm going to leave you hanging there, because That's loving. Sometimes around Easter, pastors especially say something like this. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, we're all sinners, and God is holy. And by sinning, we've offended God's holiness and excited God's wrath. Because God is holy. And God is angry. He doesn't like sin. And in order to appease God's wrath, and for forgiveness to be on the table, a sacrifice must be made. And so the wrath of the Father is poured out on the Son, and instead of me getting the wrath of God, Jesus the Son gets the wrath of God. Jesus stands in our place, and I get forgiveness, and Jesus gets wrath. Now, you may, maybe you think I'm caricaturing this, this, uh, this presentation of the Gospel in some way, but I assure you that I am not. Um, this is what is at the center of what's called penal substitutionary atonement, that there is a penalty for sin and that Jesus is my substitute. Now, I'm not arguing that substitutionary language isn't all over the Bible. It is. I just want to caution us in terms of how we're holding it and what we're saying when we're explaining what's happening at the cross in this fashion. That somehow God the Father is really, really mad and will only be not mad if blood is shed. And so therefore, God the Father gets pit against God the Son, and we're only okay because God the Son takes the anger of God for me. Now, gang, I, I think that that's problematic on a number of levels. And the, what it, what, the picture of God that it creates takes issue with what Paul is saying in Colossians, that in Christ, the fullness of God dwells. Not only that, but in 2 Corinthians, he says, all of this from God, who is reconciling himself through Christ, us to Himself, through Christ, and then gives us this ministry of reconciliation. But then He says, God was reconciling the world to Himself in Christ, not counting their sins against them. Somehow we've gotten ourselves into this trap with our, our understanding of the Bible where God becomes subservient to the Bible and God can't just choose to forgive when God wants to forgive. That somehow like blood has to be shed in order for the divine to be able to forgive. Do you see, did you hear what I just said? That sounds crazy. I would argue because it is. Like if my neighbor comes over and he breaks my window, my neighbor kid, he breaks my window, I can incur the cost of the broken window and I can choose to forgive that child but I don't need to spank my kid in order for that to happen. I can just choose to forgive. Like I said, I'm I'm teasing you here. What I am saying in Colossians, what Paul says is that in Christ, the fullness of God dwells. There is no bifurcation. You cannot pit the Father against the Son. There are massive problems with that. Now, we're going to keep working this out as Colossians goes on, but be that as it may, one of the things Paul is doing here is he's saying this is what God is like. God is not an angry dad who needs somebody's blood to be shed in order for you to be forgiven. That's not what's happening. Something else is happening at the cross. I would, I would reckon, I would argue, that it has a lot to do with what the idea of reconciliation means and what is God doing in the cross. Stay tuned to next week and the following. Okay, what is God like? First, deep truth. Second is where it all comes from and where is it going? This is not the inception of the country song Cotton Eye Joe. Maybe, though. <laughs> have you ever wondered, like, where does it all come from? Like, have you ever stood on the Grand Canyon just speechless with tears running down your face and asked the question, like, how? Have you ever listened to the, the majesty of thunder and watched the, 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 the power of lightning and thought to yourself, who does this? Or have you ever watched the sunset over the plains or the mountains or the ocean and just wondered how did we get here? Gang, this is a question we've been asking forever and ever and ever. Like, how did we get here, and where is all this headed? Like, what's the point? This is what Paul is addressing. He's saying, essentially, this is how it all got here, and this is where it's all headed. Let me, let me explain to you. If you would, just, like, close your eyes. Close your eyes, and imagine the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in creation, or one of the most beautiful things you've ever seen in creation. Maybe it's a sunset, maybe it's Maybe it's the gaze of a baby. Maybe it's the form of the human body. Maybe it's, I don't know, what's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in creation? Hold that in your gaze. Hold it in your mind's eye. All the beauty, all the wonder, all the complexity, the majesty, the interconnection, the logic, all of the created and physical world, Paul is saying, in him, it was created, and in him, it's held together. You can open your eyes. Imagine like the fabric of the universe, the very essence that holds it all together, the energy that's pulsing, the thing that makes the, the, the amaryllis bulb. Do you guys know this? Like, have you ever thought about bulbs in the spring? Like flowers, an amaryllis, a crocus, a tulip, any number. It's, it's a bulb. It's a, it comes back every year. It's just a mass of like vegetal matter. It's just like cells, Right? It's an inanimate object. And yet, every spring, this is why I love spring, this is why I think Minnesota's better than other places. Every spring, we get to watch when the sun starts to warm the earth's surface and these little things that are buried below the surface of the earth, something tells them, wake up. Do what you were made to do. And these flowers bloom and they burst through the earth and they just say, alas, I am here! Why? for beauty, for wonder. Who says that? Who tells them to do that? Paul is essentially saying, it's all, everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever experienced, it's all been created in him and by him and it's held together through him. To which you may say, Jesus was at creation? No. No. This is Christ, Jesus. Christ is the logic, John 1. He's the blueprint. He's the thing that holds it all together. He was before and will remain Jesus is the particular, that thing, the universal, the the eternal, made known, embodied, and enfleshed. Paul is saying, insofar as you and I are wrecking what the Christ has made and holds together, in Jesus' death and resurrection, it is and will be remade, redeemed, recreated in him and by him. The price that was paid to definitively and decisively defeat the only tyrant we have ever known, death, was paid in full by Jesus himself at the cross and at the resurrection. This is what Paul is saying. And that in him, everything was made and everything is held together, and it's being remade in him and through him. So everything that we can anticipate, everything we're hoping for which is a pretty big deal, a pretty big claim. Where have we come from and where are we going? The last of which, the last of these truths that Paul talks about is uh, really all about you and me. So we have who is God and what is God like and then where have we come from and where are we going and then who are we and who can we be? In the Bible, there's this idea, this metaphor, this sort of river that flows through the text and it's this idea that we are, we are, uh, we are from the proverbial parents, Adam and Eve. Right? C.S. Lewis talks about the Pevensey kids in the narnacles. Narnacles. <laughs> Just made that up right there, y'all. You know, in the narnacles. It's it's code word for the Chronicles of Narnia for all of you who don't get it. You know, in the narnacles. The Pevensey children, they're the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, right? Which is this beautiful way of saying that as humans in the story, we have one sort of proverbial parent or parents. And whether you believe Adam and Eve were literal or they're figurative, just set that aside for a second. This, this river in the text, that we are a part of a family that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the firstborn. And the scriptures talk about Adam and Eve as made in the image of God. Genesis chapter 1. That they were made in the image of God and that the goal or the plan was that they would reflect the divine image into the world, that they would be sort of co-lords, co-viceroys, co-rulers and reigners of creation. And in doing so, they would reflect the good and beautiful and just and true heart of the divine into the world. So they they were made in the image of God and the scriptures talk about Adam as the firstborn of creation. Paul says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What's he doing? Creation. He then says that he's the firstborn from among the dead. What's he doing? He's not only present at the first creation, but he's also the means by which the second creation is happening right now. Paul is essentially saying that, insofar as we, Daughters, sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, have failed to reflect the divine into the world. Jesus takes our role, our task, upon himself, does it perfectly, and then says, in me and through me, the world is being remade, recreated, resurrected, right here and right now. I'm wondering if there's anybody in the room that needs resurrection. If there's anything that's been broken or misplaced or lost or misappropriated and needs to be redeemed, restored, recreated, resurrected... And will it be the politics or will it be the economics or will it be the systems the, that will bring you to that or is there some other answer to that question? Paul is essentially saying who you are and who you can be, who you were made to be is possible in Christ. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the firstborn of new creation. In him, God is doing something new and fresh right here and right now. So long as resurrection happened, That's what's happening. That's what's on offer. So to those of you who are here this morning, wondering, like, where is the hope? You watch the news and it's just, it's depressing. How many more years of history do we need to put out in front of us to know that, like, we're not getting any better? The problems are arguably the same, just different. And I think it brings us to an existential crisis, a moment where we have to decide what is the anchor and what will we build our lives on? You have a choice in that. You have agency. You are a free, autonomous human being. God bless America. What will you choose? What will you build your life on? Paul is offering a possibility, an answer to that, to the deepest questions of the, of, the, of the human heart and the longings of our souls. Are we alone or is there someone else, is there something out there that is for us and loves us and desires good things for us and the world we live in? Or are we just kind of on our own? I don't mean to say that this is like the most important thing in the Bible, but <laughs> I think it might be. And so I offer it to you this morning for your consideration The claims Paul is making are magnanimous. They are giant. There arguably are no bigger claims. This is what God is like. In Christ, it was all made and is all being remade. And in Christ, who you were meant to be as a human being in the world is laid out before you. So by faith, follow it. Friends, that's the gospel. That in Christ, God is redeeming, restoring, renewing, recreating all that God made and called good and invites you and I to participate in it with God. So, I don't know if that's anything you need or you've been thinking about or even tickles your fancy a little bit. Somebody said to me this last week after church, they're like, I mean, Micah, is there like one thing? Like a lot of things, there's lots of questions. Yeah, the Bible, like how do we interpret it? This, that, and the other thing. Lots of questions. Is there, is there an anchor? Is there one thing? And for me, gang, I'm a Christian because this makes sense. I'm a Christian because this answers like the deepest questions of my heart and all that's wrong in the world and where it's headed and if there is any hope. And to me, if that story is true, that this is what God is like and that this is what God has done and is doing and you're invited into, I think that's really good news. And I offer it to you today. Pray with me. God, there are a million questions about very important and meaningful things. And somehow in these five, six verses that were written 2,000 and some years ago, Paul, clearly under your direction, has offered something of worth, something of value, something of weight to put into the the mix, to ask the questions, what is, what, are, what is God like? And where is this thing headed? Do we live and then die and then that's it? Or is there more? And is there a presence, an energy, a pulse, a blueprint, a logic that is all around us, in us, separate from us? And is that logic Jesus? Holy Spirit, I pray that in the next few moments of silence, when the preacher stops talking, that you would speak. Find us online at www.awakenedcommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com Backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter. Awaken Community. See you next time.